This podcast episode is brought to you by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at paypal.com. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. 100 years ago this month, women won the right to vote. After decades of organizing and protesting, women suffragists celebrated a long-awaited change to the U.S. Constitution. Here's Peggy Clark of the Aspen Institute reciting part of the 19th Amendment. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Today, we examine the strides women have made toward gender equality and the remaining hurdles. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is from the McCloskey Speaker Series held by Aspen Community Programs. One hundred years after the passage of the 19th Amendment, women are in the majority in many ways. Most voters are women, the majority of volunteers for political campaigns are women, and increasingly, they're candidates for public office. Women, says Cecile Richards, are becoming the most powerful political force in America. Richards co-created Supermajority, an organization that helps women build economic and political power and organize for gender equity. Ai-jen Poo and Katherine Granger also co-founded the group. The women sat down with Peggy Clark, who leads the Aspen Institute's Aspen Global Innovators Group, for a conversation about the 19th Amendment and what's ahead. Here's Clark. So, so let's just start by thinking about, I'm really curious about what each of you are reflecting or thinking about as we come up to this milestone. And Catherine, let me start with you. What are some of your thoughts at this moment as we approach this time? Um, You know, I think that uh, two things that I'm really reflecting on. The first is power. Um, And particularly as you think about uh, organizing women's power, it took 100 years for these women to get to the point that they did in order for the 19th Amendment to pass. And so I don't want that to be lost, how long it actually took to get to this milestone. Um, and, and then the other thing is, in, throughout the course of the, um, the struggle to get suffrage, these women were really focused on, we're not building power for ourselves. What we're trying to do is create a world where we can elect better men. And whether that was a strategy or uh, the actual truth, it's, it's been a prophecy, right? So part of the concern is that when women got the right to vote, that they were gonna take everything over and then men were gonna lose power. And women continued to assure men that that wouldn't be the case. In fact, a lot of women walked away from it entirely saying that they didn't think that women should be able to vote. And I think that that um, deference still sits with us. So I think about, a um, hundred years later and what, what is being built with supermajority, how we're really focusing on the fact that we are women, the majority of the, the population, 
and we're not yielding our power for the electoral results um, that we need. So that's the first thing. And then the, the second thing that I've just been thinking about generally is the truth. This country is finally reckoning with the truth of our history. And in order for us to build anything new, we have to excavate the old. And all of the 19th Amendment arguments, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, really kind of erase the role that Black women played um, in, the, in this role. And Martha Jones just has a book that's about to come out called Vanguard, where she's really unearthing exactly this and telling the story that how, what, how Black women fought for the right to vote with the 15th Amendment which gave black people the right to vote, black men the right to vote, and then continued uh, for 50 years more to give women and, and black women the right to vote. And we'll get into how the splits and all that happened as a result of that, but those are the two things that I'm holding is how do we yield our power and our numbers and actually lean into that instead of trying to put it away to make men comfortable. And secondly, how do we build a new movement that's multiracial and really um, entrenched in our truth so that we don't re repeat the mistakes of the past that really did split um, feminism in the early stages of um, enfranchisement? Thank you, Catherine. Those are so, that's so critical. And also it's, it's, it's this moment of reckoning. Everything is yes. open. And I love the way yes. you're inviting us to think about history in a really different way. Um, Cecile, let me turn to you. What are some of the things you're thinking about and reflecting on at this anniversary moment? I guess I'm thinking about a couple of things. One is we are coming up on, of course, the 100th anniversary at a moment in which women's political energy uh, in this country is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's obviously women are now a hundred years after suffrage began, as, as we know, didn't begin for everyone, but a uh, hundred years later, women are the majority of voters. They are the, they are the majority of volunteers on political campaigns. Uh, they're probably now the majority of donors, which is really interesting. That's a kind of a new shift. And of course, increasingly, they're candidates. I know this year, in fact, we all know what happened in 2018. It was such a, it was a watershed year for the election of so many women to Congress and women of color. This year, more women, uh, African-American women running for Congress than ever in our history. Although, of course, our rates of representation, we're still, we still rank well below um, the rest of uh, most of the rest of the world. So that's one thing is interesting is women um, 100 years later actually have this political opportunity and will will be determinative in not only the presidential race, but there'll be majority of voters everywhere else. Uh, and then the second piece of I, that is that is related to what um, Catherine said is the um, the reckoning that is happening now, finally, uh, long overdue, and will take a long time, uh, of sort of the 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 are the um, basis of this the whole the founding of this country, and the roots of white supremacy, are so linked to patriarchy, the patriarchy, and I think the more that. Um, I mean, of course, you know, just go back to, you know, nobody's free till everybody's free. I think the exciting thing that we're seeing, particularly with young women and young women of color in the lead, is the idea that we could actually build a new movement, one that we've never had in this country, a women's movement that actually is multiracial, multi-issue, um, where nobody gets left behind. And that's, I, I think, is what's kind of fueling me um, in these moments and why this year is so exciting and different than anyone I've ever um, seen before. Right, which is saying a lot because you've been in a lot of political battles since you were little at your at your mom's knee. And I know 
Cecile, you recently, in a news, Newsweek article, you said that women are becoming the most powerful political force in this country. And I, I want to link that to what Catherine said, which is that there were elements from looking at history, um, <clears throat> leaving out a huge uh, voices of minority women, a certain deference that we took. So I, I, I really want to invite us to explore that a little bit around what are some of these hardest lessons of history that we can bring bring forward. Um, and I, Jen, let me turn to you. What, what are you thinking about right now? I've been thinking a lot about women across the board, across our economy, across all of our communities as we struggle through the layers of crisis that we're dealing with right now. Um, I think all of us will agree that things weren't great for women going into the pandemic, <laughs> right? There were, there were certainly chronic crises that we were dealing with, everything from structural racism to the epidemic of low-wage work, where women were disproportionately concentrated in minimum wage jobs where you could work incredibly hard and not make ends meet, like not be able to put healthy food on the table for your kids. That was pre-pandemic. Right. And so if you listen now to women like domestic workers who are majority black and immigrant women of color, right, who are actually responsible for caring for us, and many of them have been working through this pandemic, they're in a situation where they came in without a single paid, 82% of domestic workers didn't have a single paid sick day, right? And so we're, we were talking about dramatic losses of jobs and income, such that in early March, women were calling and saying, I'm worried about how I'm going to put food on the table. We had Zoom calls with women who would hold their phones up to the screen and literally to show us there was one cent left in their bank account. And that was in March, right? And so the incredible loss of income and the incredible financial insecurity that was created by an insufficient, uh, at best, safety net that just didn't keep women safe, women workers safe. That combined with the fact that the majority of essential workers are women and disproportionately women of color. So the people who have been keeping us safe and keeping our country moving are women who are working for poverty wages, without access to health care, without access to testing and treatment, without PPE, and their kids are home from school and camp. So they're, how, are, how are they supposed to take care of their kids, even as they provide essential services for ours or for, you know, provide the lifeline for lots of older people as home care workers who are some of the most vulnerable people to the crisis? So I think women right now we all know women are incredibly resilient and incredibly powerful. And what is happening right now is unconscionable. It is a humanitarian crisis of epic, uh, epic proportions. And, and that is why women need power. That is exactly why we, we have to transform our politics and our government and to have women who actually want to solve problems in charge. <laughs> um, and that is, I think, a lot of what Supermajority is trying to do is to harness the incredible creativity and resilience and strength of women that is too often 
expended on bare minimum survival, right, to unleash it towards building and creating the systems and the culture that we know is possible in this country and that we deserve. Um, let, let me turn to this moment that we're in, in terms of the election and what, what you're, you're doing. And each of you in your own respective roles is, is in a position to be hearing from women, all different types of women about what they want and read and in need right now. Catherine, tell me what you're hearing from women and, and, and how you think this political moment can address it. Yeah, I, I, well, I just want to underscore what Ijin said, which is so important um, in terms of our safety net, is that the United States has never had a commitment to the common good. We don't take care of each other. And we actually look at um, things like child poverty as the fault of the of the parent, um, and and this whole like pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality is has always been a problem. But now it is ex exposing our fragilities, um, like I think we've never seen before. And as part of that too, it's exposing our systemic problems of. Um, white supremacy and, and misogyny. And the reason I bring that up in the context of, of answering your question is that that's what we're hearing from women is that they are really struggling. Um, these are women that I work with that are lawyers, et cetera, that can't figure out how to be home and parent and also um, work a job and do all of the other things that they need to do. And there's no safety net in place to help anyone um, and, and any economic um, class. And I hope that that starts to create the type of empathy that we actually need to crack open in this country and build something different. And that's what we're starting to hear is that this unequal structure that America is built on is starting to crack at every single foundation. And hopefully uh, what that can then turn into is real change, that we can parlay that to get people to start voting, not just for a new president, which God knows we need, but mm -hmm. for a new way of doing and being um, in this country that is more centered on women and feminism, mm -hmm. and then starts to, as Ijin says, solve the problems that are now being exposed at every level um, mm -hmm. in this country. And that's what we're hearing. People are really hurting and they're afraid and they're angry and they want to figure out how to change this, not in a, a, a transactional way, but a transformational one. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm gonna go back again to what you said, which is this is a humanitarian crisis, the likes of which none of us have, have ever seen or could even imagine. Are policymakers hearing that? What, what, where, where are, are people hearing that and seeing it in the depth and the way that you three are describing, particularly for women? I think that there's an increasing awareness. I think that the general public is feeling the pain, right? The caregiving pain, the fear about what are we gonna do if the schools don't open and how are our kids gonna get the care and the education they deserve? Everyone's feeling the pain and that includes policymakers. Now the extent to which there's bravery and, um, and leadership on actually meeting the scale of the problem and the challenge mm -hmm. and at the level of pain that people are feeling it, right? That takes courage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we are seeing that from some, but not enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, for example, 
um, the House passed a bill called the HEROES Act that includes protections for essential workers that are so long overdue. How are we months into this crisis and we're still fighting for PPE and safety and health protections for essential workers? It just doesn't make any sense, right? It also includes relief, extending relief to millions of families who were excluded from the first round of relief. It includes aid to states and cities. I mean, all of these things are no brainers. There's nothing extravagant here. This is about how we move through this crisis. And the Senate has had weeks and hasn't, hasn't acted on it. So I would say now is actually the time. The Senate, before they leave, they have to do their jobs and they have to take action on the HEROES Act and so much more. I mean, this is just the beginning of what's gonna be needed to put a vision for economic recovery that uplifts women, uplifts people of color, uplifts all of our essential workers. And we know how to do it. It's not rocket science. It's actually, there are actually clear policy measures and ideas and, um, and solutions that we can execute on and we just need to do it, which is why, again, <laughs> we need women. <laughs> we need women to vote. We need women to organize. We need women to push Senate and to run for office. Great, no, that's great. So so let's turn to, to that a little bit. And Cecile, let me turn to you. What more needs to be done to advance women's progress and rights? Oh my God, we don't have enough time, Peggy, to even like begin. But I, yeah, so I, I think it's, I think we've established that this, this COVID crisis, which is, I don't care what focus group you go to, where you, this is what is on women's mind. It's because it's, they're, they're terrified of their health. They're terrified, they're, they're terrified for their kids. They have no idea how to go back to work. This whole work at home myth, if you're taking care of children and you're, and your family, et cetera. Um, so, but moving beyond that, what really was happening even before COVID, because as, as Ijen said, you know, it wasn't like life was great for women um, before all this, this happened, is that we are structurally have, are not set up in this country for women to be full participants in government, in the workforce, in anything. And I mean, I saw this, of course, when I was at Planned Parenthood, when the biggest pitched battle we ever had was literally in the Affordable Care Act to get family planning covered, which is seems like ludicrous that we would have in this fight. And of course, this administration is now trying to roll that back. But it wasn't even until the Affordable Care Act, which is not that old, that women weren't penalized for their gender for buying health insurance, right? It was the first time that actually there was no more gender rating and that women couldn't be denied coverage because of pre-existing conditions. So the structural inequities, they exist up and down. Um, so we need to do more for healthcare, but the, my obsession right now is on the fact that there is, we are at a childcare crisis in this country. We are telling women they have to go back to work. There's no one to take care of their kids. Um, and this government is doing nothing about it. Um, in fact, I was just looking up, uh, you know, under the CARES Act, where Delta Airlines got more money um, in the bailout than the entire childcare industry in this country. Um, so it's not just it's. And as I Jen said, it's not like we don't know how to solve some of these problems. It is like we do not have the political will, and we're not willing to say as a country, you know what, women they're probably here to stay in the workforce. And so we need to figure out a way structurally for women to be able to participate. And that's what I feel like I hear from women 
in our meetings at Supermajority across the country where women literally think it's their own fault that they cannot figure out now how to return to work and make sure that their kids are taken care of somewhere and that their parents who are now, you know, their mother who's living with them is, you know, got the care that she needs. And every single woman is trying to figure it out on her own. And that isn't going to work. So I hope that what we can do in this election is one, women demonstrate the political force that they are and what we need, not, not to have more than our share, but just to have a fighting chance of being able to participate. Uh, and that we have uh, in, the, in this next administration, an effort to really just sort of like level the playing field. And again, you could start with childcare. You know, Elizabeth Warren has proposed a $50 billion childcare plan that would actually make it possible for everyone in this country to get affordable childcare. That's the kind of bold leadership that we need. Um, let's go back, Catherine, to a little bit of the history lesson since we are, we are marking this 100th anniversary. And there were so many fits and starts in the women's movement. And I know that Supermajority has in many ways founded itself on some of the key lessons that we learned through that battle. So Catherine, would you mind giving the viewers a little bit of a history lesson um, about what happened and getting to, you know, 1920, which took so long to get the women the right to vote for those of us that are not as familiar with it as you all. Sure. And I love this story. So I'm happy. I'm happy to tell it, which is that the, the right to vote actually started out for a call for all uh, disenfranchised people to have the right to vote. And so this is pre 15th amendment when um, slaves had recently been freed and white women and black people were working together to call for the right to vote. Uh, and, it, and that's what it was called, the right to vote. And then the 15th amendment passed first and that created a huge schism within the movement. And, it, and when you think about it too, Frederick Douglass was one of the leading um, people who were advocating for the right to, for women to vote. And these early suffragists that, uh, who were white were um, leading abolitionists, right? Th these things were all tied together. And this goes to Cecile's point about how misogyny and white supremacy, they're one of the same, they're, 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 inter they're linked. And so when the 15th Amendment uh, passed and, and carved out women, that is when we started to see kind of the ugly underbelly of, not see, that the, uh, the, uh, the ugly underbelly of racism just continue to be exposed where white women who were leading abolitionists kind of separated and started to say terrible things about black men and the fact that white women deserved the right to vote more than they did. And it just, it, it created a continued demise. But I think what's even more important is this is all orchestrated. So the 15th amendment was passed and never really enforced, right? There, mm -hmm. there was a brief moment during reconstruction, but otherwise the, it, it was through Jim Crow laws Black people were given, the, Black men were given the right to vote on paper. They never really actually actualized that, except for like a four year period in our history. And the reason I bring that up is because the men in the South who were fighting against the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote, were fighting against it because they didn't want the 15th Amendment to be enforced. Mm -hmm. So their argument was, okay, first of all, we can't have more black people voting by giving women, mm -hmm. black women, the right to vote. But secondly, mm -hmm. if you start to put the 19th amendment in, into law, then maybe they'll start enforcing the 15th amendment, which mm -hmm. for the last 50 years, we've been able to keep at bay. 
And I just think that's such an important lesson because it's showing how the status quo of white male supremacy reigns supreme, still does, we're still here. And that as, as we let ourselves be pulled apart by it, um, which is, is largely what happened through this 15th and 19th Amendment fight, we actually don't transcend it. Mm-hmm. And so going to this history and the important lesson of it, we actually have an opportunity right now to fix that and come mm-hmm. together and say, this, our whole system has been designed to keep power for these few. And it's not benefiting any of us and it's broken and it's not working. And we can, instead of coming from a scarcity place where we we fight each other for the scraps, we actually can come to a whole and build something that is abundant. And that is what I hope we're finally at that point um, with all of the breaking opening that's happening right now. Um, Cecile and I, let me turn to you. What are your thoughts on this, these lessons from history? I was just so inspired by um, by the way that Catherine framed that story, and I just wanted to build off of that by saying that one of the things we've really seen in supermajority is women's resistance, fundamental resistance to a zero-sum politics, and a desire to to build build power together, um, and a resistance to feeling like we we have to choose and fall into these hierarchies of power and human value that have divided us over time. And understanding that um, the future we want relies upon our ability to organize and build together. And that organizing is about addition, not subtraction, right? Mm-hmm. That we need to keep adding and transforming ourselves as we add, learning and growing together. And so I think there's something really powerful about that inclination among women to, to resist the politics of a zero sum choice and a pitting against and being willing to do the work that is required to have the unity and the power to win. And that is, I think, um, what could be, that's the opportunity of this moment. That's what could be defining of this moment. And I think it's how we start to model the kind of multiracial democracy that we can be in this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Cecile, you're a pragmatist and you've been in a lot of battles. What would, how would you respond? Well, I just, it's, um, it's sad and ironic that, of course, everything Catherine is talking about, all the efforts that were made in the South to suppress the vote, it's not like that's left. That is absolutely what is happening today. And unfortunately, of course, it's happening, at, you know, out of, out of the federal government. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of us were so inspired um, and got to spend time with Stacey Abrams in, in her really historic transformational run for uh, governor of the state of Georgia. Um, I remember going and actually campaigning with with Stacy, waiting for her in a, a hall filled, teeming with people and her having to walk through Confederate flags to get into the hall. Um, so just to, there's a lot of things that have changed and a lot of things that haven't changed. And of course, that's a good example of an election where if everyone had actually been allowed to vote and every vote had been counted, we would be calling her governor Abrams today. And so. I think heading, I'm, you know, I'm a pragmatist in the sense of, I think everyone is looking into this election, realizing it is going to be a watershed election. There is 
more energy. There have been people have been waiting for this election for about three and a half years. Um, and yet we are dealing with um, a completely chaotic voting system. One of the things that we hear from women and most recently in focus groups is that they are worried and scared about voting, not just that their vote won't be counted, which is something they usually worry about, but literally that it's not going to be safe to vote. Obviously, have an administration that is trying to prevent people from voting safely, like voting by mail, uh, those kinds of things. And so I think it's really incumbent on all of us to do everything we can to realize there is the systemic barriers to equal voting. Um, they continue to exist. And of course, they historically have fallen hardest on women, uh, women with low incomes, women of color, women who have kids, can't stand in line for hours and hours and hours on end. Um, but yes, my hopeful side is, and it's something I think we're also hearing from women is they're very resilient, as I just said, and they are ready to go. And uh, we even saw, we were we texted into Wisconsin during that uh, election, which I know everyone saw on television when folks were forced to wait in line for hours and vote in person, and people did. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I actually, I do believe in our democracy and I believe that people want to vote and will vote, but there's a lot we have to do to make it possible and to make it safe, particularly this November. No, I think that question of how can voters um, vote safely during COVID is a huge challenge. And so should we all, should all of the listeners be voting by mail? What, what would you advise people who are, who are listening about how they can support others and what they themselves should do? Well, I think the most important thing we can do right now is, of course, push in every locality and state. Because of course, it's all decided um, at the state level that to push for as many options as possible. Many states have liberalized the way that you can register by mail, vote by mail, no excuses, absentee, drop off balloting. And it's I mean, this is just sort of the the really sad state of our democracy is like you look at a state like Arizona where. I think upwards of 70% of people vote um, absentee early, no excuses, absentee in a state like Pennsylvania that only recently even got the ability to do that, where only about 3% of women take advantage of that. So the disparity is huge. It's an issue that we're working on at Supermajority. Certainly, Stacy at Fair Fight uh, is taking the lead on, but we don't have a lot of time to get this right. Um, one thing I'll just to put a plug in, I'm really excited about is that Supermajority, we've launched Supermajority Home, which by September will be a, a, a um, web uh, location, a portal where any woman, although any person, can find out if she's registered, make sure she hasn't been thrown off the rolls, uh, what are the voting rules in her community, and literally where she can vote and how she can vote. It's that simple, and I, so I think it's important for all the Aspen world be doing everything we can to be thinking about how do we make it easier for women who already face a lot of barriers uh, to democratic uh, participation. This podcast episode is brought to you by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers that limit opportunities for long-term wealth creation. The global pandemic has impacted vulnerable populations and underserved communities especially hard. 
PayPal believes that financial health and security is an essential foundation for people to pursue a better future for their families and communities and to join and thrive in a more equitable global economy. Everyone should have access to affordable, convenient, and secure financial services, and PayPal is committed to fulfilling this mission by championing equality, diversity, and inclusion inside the company and outside. PayPal is working to address the economic underpinnings of racial inequality. Learn more about how PayPal is helping to close the racial wealth gap by supporting, sustaining, and investing in black-owned businesses and communities. Visit the newsroom at paypal.com. Now, back to today's featured conversation. Let me turn to you, Ijen, and also Catherine on that question of what what can women do or or men and others who are listening to get involved and how can they how can they act about some of the frustrations that we're all feeling right now and the poignant challenges and desperation that we're seeing um, for so many? What would you recommend? Aiden, let me start with you. Well, I would start by um, calling your senator to vote on the HEROES Act and really underscoring the urgency of um, what is in the HEROES Act, which is money that is going to help us survive this crisis um, on every level. And it includes money to make sure that the elections can happen in a, in a, in a, a fair way. Um, so I just, I do think it's, it's urgent and important and very timely for people to call their senators and urge the passage of the HEROES Act. Um, and to really sign up to figure out how you can be a part of mobilizing voters. And I know Supermajority is um, going to be trying to reach as many women as we can um, through our Women to Women Voter Mobilization Program. And we'd love for anyone to join us and be a part of of that effort. That's great. Catherine, would you like to add? Yeah, the only thing I would say is I'd underscore what Cecile said, which is vote. The, our presidential elections, usually less than 50% of the population chooses who's president, and that's just crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have, we have a real opportunity to, to get some power back right now, and people have to participate. The second thing is, and it's, I'm starting to see it more and more, and I find it so refreshing, is people are finally speaking up and speaking out and demanding more and demanding it differently. Um, my father is out there door knocking every night, no matter, I'm like, there's an election currently. I don't even know what it is, but he's doing it. And I think that that's, we all have to engage in our democracy right now in Mm -hmm. order to take it back and demand more. And so vote, it's really important. And, and so few of us do it. Right. So I think all of you are building a new women's movement and building a new, Catherine, as you described it, kind of a social construct. But as we reflect on this 100th anniversary, usually you hit a 100th anniversary and it's a celebration. You say this is great. You know, it's been 100 years. But there's a there's a there's a lot of poignancy and difficulty to reflecting on the schisms between the women in the feminist movement um, and, and Native Americans and blacks and Tell me how you think we can learn from the lessons of the past to rebuild the women's movement in a different way right now. Catherine, can I start with you on that? 
Sure. I mean, I think that we um, have touched on it quite a bit where we talked about that any movement needs to be multiracial um, and really kind of lean into the fact that women will be the majority in this country if we unite together and work together. And so, so that I think that that is that's crucial. Um, I also feel like we have really kind of run from uh, what is patriarchy and tried to make excuses for it. So the, we are in a, a system where it is not designed for women to be successful. And we are constantly coming up against patriarchal barriers that we're not doing anything to unearth. And we make excuses for them or we have an exceptionalism mentality. And so the, in the 70s, the um, child care, universal child care was front and center and being called for. And we chipped away and chipped away and chipped away at it. But now that's radical again. And so we really just need to get back to, and this is where I started from, I think this is a celebration. I mean, it is a celebration that women have had the right to vote for a hundred years. It's also the beginning of an arc for building something better and different. And I think we need to lean into that and really fight tooth and nail to start to do this excavation work that um, we were talking about at the beginning of this segment that we're, where we can build something different. And the last thing I would just say is that you know, if you look at the world leaders in this country who have handled COVID beautifully, they're majority women. And this goes to Ijen's point about our leadership is different. And, you know, again, going back to the celebration, we had significant amount of women running for election this year. Um, it was a milestone. The fact that we haven't broken through yet is frustrating, but I, I keep thinking that we're at, we're at that precipice. And I think we're kind of at the that midpoint of the arc until we really realize our, our power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cecile, do you think we're at the precipice? What are your thoughts about that? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I just, it's a, it's a new day and it feels, it feels different, but I, I just want to underscore what Catherine said. Um, I mean, this is long-term work. This isn't like, I, no matter what happens in November, there's a lot of there's a lot still to do ahead and in some ways that's just the beginning of what has to happen but i think it's important one of the conversations that we have a lot at supermajority and particularly with a very young staff was just so um i don't know idealistic and visionary is that you know we've talked a lot of time about equality and we really don't talk about equity and all the issues that the women's movement has been fighting on, whether it's childcare access, whether it's equal pay, uh, whether it's educational opportunity, uh, running for office, it's experienced differently for women of color uh, in particular. And part of the work we have to do is really center the experience of women of color. Because until we understand that, until white women understand that, we're actually not gonna build the world we wanna, we wanna build. And, it's, um, and that's, that's work we gotta do every day. Um, and that's why it's frankly been um, such an incredible journey to be on with iGen and Catherine and our friend Alicia Garza, who's another part of our merry band, and Jess morales Riquetto and Deirdre Schiefling, is that uh, beginning to learn from each other um, about our blind spots and all the work that has to happen. I do think that's that has not happened in my lifetime in the way that it is now. And again, I, I want to give a lot of uh, credit to, to young women who are demanding this. Um, Absolutely. Their, 
in a completely different way. And I, I love the way you frame that center, the experience of women of color, center it. It's not peripheral, it's not center. And then, you know, I think also you reflecting on the way we talk about white supremacy and patriarchy now. And we didn't really talk about that before. Those were kind of third rail words that if you use them, people thought you were being extremist. But in fact, um, the moment we're in shows that to be different. So, I, you know, I want to ask two things. One is, what are you worrying about right now? I mean, <laughs> maybe that's a silly question because we're all carrying around these huge worries. But as it relates to this moment of trying to realize women's rights more fully in this year, what are you worried about? Yeah, I'll say that I'm worried a little bit about too much symbolism and signaling and not enough action and real change. Um, and, um, you know, I'm just thinking about everything from how wonderful culturally it is that people came out and clapped for essential workers every night for, for months. But to this day, we are still fighting for basic rights and health and safety for essential workers. And, you know, the distance between our awareness and when lives change feels like it's too long, too far. And so, um, I think that some of this work is very long-term work and I really want us to think about what, how we move structural change forward, right? Solutions that really get at the root of why there's so much fragility in our society and our economy right now and, um, and build it in a way um, with courage that we've never marshaled before, frankly, at least not in my memory, um, with the kind of courage that, that meets the challenges ahead. Um, and I wanted to bring in this, um, you know, your question about kind of, what are we celebrating? What are we not celebrating? I, I was thinking about the many women of color, especially black women who've played such a role in strengthening our democracy over many, many generations and every election. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking in particular about a woman named Dorothy Bolden, who um, is from Atlanta, Georgia, and she was the founder of the National Domestic Workers Union. And she was a neighbor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in the height of the civil rights movement, she knocked on his door and said, I wanna be a part of the civil rights movement. Domestic workers like me, we wanna be a part. And he said, we'll go organize domestic workers. and. That is what she did. And the only two requirements for being a member of the National Domestic Workers Union were one, that you are a domestic worker and two, that you are registered to vote. Mm -hmm. And I think each of us in our different worlds, in our different movements, our different issues, our different concerns and priorities, we can be like, it's this and it's vote. <laughs> and it's like, that's part of how we get from the narrative and the kind of symbols to the real actual change. Right. That's really beautifully said. Um, so I want to turn to each of you personally, and we all, all of the viewers uh, listening to this right now, and so many people are suffering right now and feeling strains in a way we haven't, we haven't felt before. And 
It is true that you are um, role models to so many, um, all three of you, and many, many people follow you. And um, I, Jen, we watched you at the Academy Awards, and Cecile, we watched you doing battle for our reproductive rights, and um, we've thought about who you are as individuals, and we and we and we see you show up day after day. So, how are you taking care of yourself right now? Um, what what is some of the self-care that you're using that's keeping you strong in this moment, really unparalleled moment of pressure. Um, Cecile, can we start with you? I, Jen, knows I hate, this is like my most hated question. Um, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> but also, yeah, I can make it short and sweet. Well, one, my dog, Ollie, uh, I think we've all talked about even before this call, um, I know that there's not a dog to be rescued in New York City. Um, that's probably a too flip to say, but everyone's got a rescue dog. Uh, Ollie's keeping me sane. Um, and being with my kids, um, I think that's it. But I, I also think there's just, I just want to bust a myth real quick. I think there are folks who believe that for those of us who do social justice work as our job, that we are these, you know, put upon, beaten down folk. And I, it is the privilege of a lifetime to get to do this work. It's not easy. It is hard but to get up every day and feel like you can actually begin to like move things a little bit towards a better place is a privilege that very, very few people um, in this country, in this world ever have. And so um, even though I like to do things and make my own pasta and do kind of things like that, they're just fun. I have such joy in my work that um, I think it's, I just, I want to make sure that I, to never, um, minimize how important that that is to me. Right. That's great. Catherine, what about you? Well, I, I agree with Cecile. And I always say that the revolution needs to be based in joy. And so I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time dancing in my bathrobe. Mm -hmm. um, and that brings me a lot of joy. I also, um, I usually am on the road about three weeks out of the month. And so this pause for me has been kind of exceptional. I, I've never spent this much time in my apartment ever. And the, I use my, uh, my oven for storage, mail storage. I would put my mail in there. It's been in there for years. And I actually took it out and I'm learning how to cook for the first time in my <laughs> entire life. And it's wonderful. And it's, it's actually allowing me to kind of decide how I want to eat and when, and, and it feels like quite a luxury. That's so. great. I love that story about the oven. Hi, Jen, what about you? I think Cecile and I were kind of sisters from another mother on this question, but because um, I my my big slogan is winning is self care, um, so um, which I really believe. Um, and you know I do do yoga. I try to sleep. Um, and uh, what COVID has taught me is the incredible um, joy of a walk in the neighborhood. So I've been walking a lot more and just kind of slowing down at different moments. Um, okay. uh, but I will say that, yeah, the, the okay. way that I will feel cared for is if everybody goes to vote in right. and we win. That's right. That's right. Can we turn voting into a dance party? That's the way we started this conversation. So what song are we, what, what song are we moving to guys? And uh, maybe I, uh, I, Jen, I was so taken by when you started carrying across generations, you said starting a social movement is sort of like a love affair. If you have, you know, it's the deep passion and you put, you make a mixed tape with your song. So, um, so if we had a playlist for the women's movement, um, what should we put on it? Anybody want to throw some songs in? 
best to dance to. We have a playlist at Super Majority, and I think you can even get it on. Probably we can send it to you. Uh, in fact, and I spent a t- like a lot of a lot of days on a bus uh, across this country and listened to everything. But I will say, the the biggest joy is every staff meeting um, we start at Super Majority starts with Beyonce, and it is okay. it completely changes the mood. You can do anything. <laughs> Perfect. We love it. We love it. Okay. We want to get that playlist. Maybe we can um, send it around to all of our viewers. Anybody want to add anything else about songs or dance moves before we go to q and I mean, I think we should always end on Beyonce. So. We need to always end on Beyonce, right? <laughs> Let's go to some of our viewers. Crystal Logan, Vice President of Community Programs and Engagement at the Aspen Institute, reads questions from the online audience. Our first question is, as funding for childcare is discussed, is the living wage also being explored for high quality childcare providers so that the childcare industry does not have to continue to recreate substandard pay scale and workers without benefits, which therefore leads to our children receiving substandard care? Who wants to take that? Um, well, there is a lot of um, movement on childcare on every front. And um, just last week, Vice President Biden released his um, the third plank of his economic agenda. Um, the first plank was infrastructure. The second plank was climate. And the third plank is the care economy. And it's really the first time there's been a major presidential campaign that has made the care economy a core part of the economic agenda, as opposed to siloing it as part of the women's agenda or some other um, piece. And um, in major investments in the childcare workforce is at the heart of that proposal. So making childcare jobs, living wage jobs with benefits and real economic security is, and and the right to a union and a voice at work is core to that vision. And so as is training and as is a whole vision around innovation. So there's a lot there Um, and it's not just childcare, it's also long-term care, which is a growing issue um, as our older population in this country grows, and we've seen through the COVID crisis just how unprepared we are for that, um, there is a whole vision around expanding home and community-based services uh, for the aging and people with disabilities in the proposal. So I think that there's a lot um, that is in the vice president's agenda. Um, And then I think it's up to us to really push Congress to move forward on the visionary proposals like the one that Cecile mentioned um, with childcare. And we've been working on an agenda um, that is called universal family care. The idea that there should one day be one fund that we all contribute to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us pay for childcare, long-term care, support for people with disabilities and paid family leave basically everything you need to take care of your family as a working person. Thank you. Our next question is, we've seen such leadership coming from our younger population on several issues, gun violence, structural racism, et cetera. What is your message for this group on the opportunity of now related to voting? It's really interesting. That was a question, Crystal. Sorry, I'm going to just jump in here, Ijen and Catherine, because um, I was just I was just pulling up the numbers again. Um, Four million young people turn 18 every year. So 
doing some just quick math, that's 16 million young people who are not eligible to, to vote four years ago who, who can go vote this fall. And so if nothing else, um, investing in the organizations that work with them, uh, investing in them as leaders and giving them opportunities, it's like it seems um, obvious, but that it these are the these are the efforts that are the least funded, the least supported. And it's funny, we just did a, a supermajority. We just offered up a um, a seven week training program for young leaders, and we thought well, we could take maybe eight hundred. We had eighteen hundred young women apply in the first ten days. Um, young, overwhelmingly young women of color, just eager, eager to have an opportunity to participate. And so I just, I, I really think it's, it's, it's a question to ask for the groups that you work with. What are you doing with young people to help them be the leaders that we need them to be and that, that, and that they already are. They're just looking for support um, and opportunity. Our next question is, Aijun Poo talked about the importance of women organizing and growing together and the issue of a lack of benefits among many essential workers in America. What are some ways that we can support women in these essential positions so that they can organize, grow, and advocate for themselves in a system that is failing to protect them? I love this question. Um, I would say that to really reach out to all your elected officials and candidates um, in your area and let them know that essential worker protections are really, really important to you and should be a priority. Um, and I would support women's organizations um, and organizations that are organizing essential workers. The National Domestic Workers Alliance works with women who are working as home care workers, nannies, and house cleaners. Um, there's a group called United for Respect that works with retail workers. Um, there are unions who've been fighting really hard um, to unionize um, workers who've been going on strike, teachers who are having to go on strike to keep the children that they educate safe. So there's just uh, a, a lot of organizing and activism happening. Support those campaigns and support their demands. Our next question is, what can individual women in the U.S. do to further these causes? Other than voting and supporting politicians, how do we encourage the private sector and our employees to play a part? or employers to play a part? You know, I, I'll just jump in quickly. I had experience in the marriage equality movement around this where um, private sector uh, folks were coming out and saying, we're, we're not going to set up shop in this state because you're anti-gay or come work for us um, and we will have packages that recognize your families and are good on equality and really spoke up and put uh, their resources behind um, homophobic and uh, anti-gay states and elected officials. And we haven't seen that be mobilized around gender in the same way. And I think there's a huge opportunity to do so. So women who are in, uh, and men who are in uh, positions of power, they can really stand up and say, you know, this is what it looks like to have equality um, in our, or not only our company, but we're not going to go to places that are bad on abortion or bad on um, pay equity, et cetera, et cetera, um, and take a stand because capitalism is, is in our water and that is what we care about. And when people say this is going to have a cost benefit to you, that you discriminate, um, it, it actually makes a difference. 
And so there is a real opportunity, I think, for all of us to use our bully pulpit in that way. And we've seen it be beneficial um, in, with other movements. Our next question is, what is the most effective way to get out the vote for change in a very gerrymandered district? Well, I'll take that. Um, yeah, we have to change, obviously, the lines. And so, so many elections this year will, will state elections will determine whether um, lines are draw, redrawn um, post-census in a nonpartisan way. So working on local elections and statewide elections is incredibly important. There isn't really any other, there's no quick fix right now um, to doing that, but, but you're exactly right. I think the thing that is important to remember is um, at least, and I come from Texas where we've had, I mean, drawing drawing lines that are that are partisan is just like in the in the bloodstream it's like what we've always done we are seeing women we are seeing women of color we are seeing young people win elections that no one that everyone wrote off and so i also think it's just you know as i think we saw and we certainly saw in texas in beto o'rourke's race we saw in stacy's race um other places where as as catherine said in the beginning there's a lot of places where i mean we don't vote as a people. And so if you can expand the electorate and that means, you know, getting out there, doing the, doing the grassroots work, you know, and at this point, of course, not going door to door, but texting voters, the kind of thing we do at supermajority, you can actually expand the electorate. And I think focusing on that um, is a way we can actually flip some seats and, and then influence the way lines are drawn so that we have a Congress um, and we have legislatures that more truly reflect and the diversity of the country. And just something quickly to add to that is that we can, in most states, also vote for judges that draw these lines. And so don't ignore those races as well. It's the whole ballot um, makes those determinations. Um, our last question is, what, what's the number one thing you think we should be advocating for to better support and empower American women right now? Well, I'll say one that is never popular, but I, I still feel very strongly about, which is um, I'll go to the Equal Rights Amendment. We have not passed the ERA in this country. What it does is that we put in the constitution that you can't discriminate against um, on the basis of sex. That's all it says. And how we use it is solely up to us. So you could have an entire, um, campaign of lawyers, activists, policymakers, et cetera, that could reinterpret how women are protected uh, on the basis of gender in this country. And so I think that that, that would be my thing. Anything else to add? Mm. I, I would underscore the importance of the care economy. I think it's something that um, is fundamental to all of our lives and we've never invested in it. We've never supported it. and. Um, and we've just left it up to each individual to try to figure it out and it's impossible. And I think if we put that foundation in place, it would unlock so much power and potential among women, but really among everyone. Um, elect a woman vice president, which is almost, it's getting closer to women, electing a woman president. And having a government that looks like us, as we have seen um, on the Supreme Court with Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, Ruth, having a government that begins to actually look like the people it represents is the most radical and revolutionary thing that we could do. Uh, and so I hope that um, 
women will vote. I hope you will support women who are running for office. Uh, but we haven't, I, I hate to leave this call without talking, or at least referencing the fact that a hundred years after the beginning of suffrage, we have the first best chance um, to actually put a woman in the executive branch, um, whoever she may be. That's a great place to end. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Jen Poo is Executive Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Cecile Richards is the former president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Catherine Granger is an adjunct professor at New York University's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. And Peggy Clark is vice president of policy programs at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation, held July 28th, was part of the McCloskey Speaker Series at the Institute. The Bridge Podcast, a sister show from the Aspen Institute, is also carrying this conversation. The podcast pairs wise women from different generations and geographies in revelatory conversations about what matters most. Find this conversation and others featuring Cecile Richards, Ai-Jen Poo, Madeline Albright, Kimberly Crenshaw, and others. Search The Bridge from the Aspen Institute on your favorite podcast player. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin. It was programmed by the Aspen Community Programs team, which includes Zoe Brown, Katie Carlson, Crystal Logan, and Jillian Scott. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast episode is brought to you by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at paypal.com.